Why is the Soviet and the Russian story about Ukraine's East misleading? Why is the concept of Donbass problematic? How are the eastern regions of Ukraine inscribed into the Ukrainian political and cultural history as well as the history of Europe? You're listening to the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. My guest today is Katerina Zarembo, a Ukrainian scholar and writer of the recent book Schid Ukrainsko Sonsia, The Rise of the Ukrainian Sun, or you can translate it as The East of the Ukrainian Sun. The book tells the story of Ukraine's East and was shortlisted for BBC Ukraine's Best Essays Book Prize, as well as the Shevilov Prize for the Best Essay Book in Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me also remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Katerina Zaremba, welcome to this podcast. Hello, it's my pleasure to be here. So we know each other for a long time, but now I would like to talk with you about your book, which is called Schid Ukrainsko Sonsia, which is difficult to translate into English, right? Because we can say the rise of the Ukrainian sun, but then Schid means also the east. And uh, your your book is about the Ukrainian east or the eastern part of Ukraine. Why did you decide to write this book? Yes, uh, thank you very much, Volodya, for inviting me and thank you for pointing out this uh, difficulty indeed in, in translation or this uh, uh, play of words in Ukrainian. Basically, the title which you mentioned already signifies the uh, light part, the colorful part, the life-full part of the region, uh, which is connected with much pain, let's say, in Ukraine's recent history, let's put it this way. I decided to write this book because I felt the responsibility to tell the stories which I at some point uncovered after Russia started its unproclaimed aggression in 2014. And I myself learned more about Ukraine's East, about the region uh, which collectively embraces uh, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts of Ukraine. Uh, and the more I learned things which I would say did not belong to Ukraine's popular discourse about this region, the more I felt a responsibility to make them widely known. So you are talking about Schid, and there are many Ukrainian authors, well, not many, but there is a number of Ukrainian authors who are using this word. Also the book of Alexander Mehet, one of Ukrainian best nonfiction writers, uh, which, is, which was about the East, is also using this word instead of Donbass. And you are discussing the word Donbass also in your book. Tell me why you decided to to talk about East and not Donbass. Right. Uh, this question, of course, belongs to one of the core arguments which I am making with my book. And also, of course, I'm borrowing uh, the thesis also from Mihet's book, but also from other Ukrainian intellectuals. Basically, this is a long 
discussion, a rather long discussion about the regional toponymy, if I'm using the academic terms, uh, so the regional toponymy which contributes or causes maybe knowledge distortion. Basically, Donbass, the word which is often used also in the, let's say, in the, in the Western audiences, our English-speaking audiences, to denote this easternmost part of Ukraine, stems from abbreviation dating back to the Russian Empire. And this abbreviation stands for Donetsk Kolbazin. So this is about industrial, um, industrial Bazin, industrial part of, of Ukraine, which is actually, when we look at the map, uh, it does not coincide with the uh, administrative lines of the oblast, which I mentioned, so Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, but instead it uh, comprises part of Luhansk Oblast, part of Donetsk Oblast, part of Dnipropetrovsk Oblast, and also part of Rostov region in Russia. So this is uh, about four different current administrative units uh, in two countries. Uh, however, uh, the term was widely used uh, first in the Russian Empire and then especially in the Soviet Union um, to um, basically also impart identities on the region. And why this is problematic, uh, why we simply can say, well, you know, the language morphs. Yeah, We now call Donbass as a, as a colloquial name of the region, so let, let's take it as it is. I, I, I think that it's more complicated than that. Uh, uh, for several reasons. First, the so-called uh, Soviet, Russian and Soviet myth of Donbass negated any other identity of the region except for Russian-speaking, Philo-Russian and industrial. And this is very important if we talk about the Ukrainian identity of the region, which has been there from before the development of Donetsk Bazin from the people who were Ukrainian by uh, ethnicity, who spoke Ukrainian, who did something else than working in the mines and in the plants. And basically, this is the story which has been oppressed and untold um, uh, for, for uh, many, for, well, basically for over, over a century. And this was also exploited, if we look at the history of, the of, the, of Ukraine's independence, then you will see that it was also exploited by the party of the regions in 2004 and 2010 during the presidential elections. Uh, uh, basically, the um, party of the regions and uh, Viktor Yanukovych, its leader, uh, appealed to this Donbath miss of former grandeur. However, grandeur itself was a myth, and I can explain it later if you'd like, uh, the point is that this was part of the region's identity, part of the, but not exclusive part, and to some, uh, in in some respects, also uh, a pure a pure lie. For example, so something that what is also very important to me, something that then resulted in uh, a complete misinterpretation of the events of 2014. So non-understanding that this was the Russian covert war. Uh, uh, this basically led to, uh, so this knowledge distortion led to misinterpretation of then interstate war starting from 2014 abroad. And this specifically resulted in the lack of support for Ukraine and la lack of understanding of what's actually going on. So it's not just a word, it's not just regional toponymy. Then another point uh, which I think is very important is basically how the local people perceive the term. And this I think gives me a trump card in explaining that because basically when you talk to people north of Luhansk Oblast or south of Donetsk Oblast, they would not say that they live in Donbass. So if you, if you ask them, so 
how is it living in Donbass? They would say, well, we don't live there. We live either in Slobozhansk in the north of Luhansk or we live in Priazovia. The famous Mariupol belongs to Priazovia, so the coast of Azov Sea. So they would totally not associate themselves with Donbass. And I think this gives us also this legitimacy to explain that this term is not okay even now, even if elsewhere we use it as an umbrella term. So this is a, a big simplification and, and, as I said, already knowledge distortion. And last but not least, when we look inside both Oblast. So, of course, I mean, administrative lines on the maps is something that's drawn by people. But when we look inside this oblast, we would also see, see much differences. So there are agricultural settlements and there are indeed industrial and urban settlements. And then the industry has also evolved. And for example, uh, Donetsk Oblast is famous not only for, for coal and coal again. I mean, it was uh, the, the industry which was diminishing and, and, and um, uh, less and less profitable for already 70 years, not not even in Ukraine's, uh, the period of Ukraine's independence, but also, for example, ceramics. Ceramics is something that for, for which the Neskoblast is famous for, but let's say famous in, in narrow circles. However, it could also be kind of the, the trademark of the oblast had we maybe talked more and got more interest and, and explored more and discovered more about these nuances of the uh, of the regional portraits. And my last point, and I will conclude, uh, my, one of the points of my book was also that we should take more interest in the nuances of Ukraine's regions generally, not only in the East. Yeah, absolutely agree. And uh, I also agree that this is a very much artificial concept because... Actually, we talk about historical Ukrainian regions, and you mentioned Slobozhanshina or Slobitska Ukraine, which also contains this element of Sloboda, Svoboda, the free territory, the free lands where people mostly from the Russian Empire would land in. And then you have Zaporizhia, uh, which is also the idea of this free land where free people will settle, the Cossacks, but mostly from Rzeczpospolita, from Polish-Lithuanian state. And then you have, of course, Priazovia, the Azov region, which is also very interesting in terms of how Ukrainian identity is linked to it, uh, starting from, uh, well, the uh, now very important for Ukrainian history, Battalion Azov, both from tw 2014, Defenders of Mariupol, and of course 2022, but also going into Ukrainian literature, people like Yuri Kosach, who wrote... Uh, the uh, his novel Volodarka Pontide, the the queen of Pontida uh, or Pontis, uh, and and this was the Azov lady. So the idea of this step and um, and and the sea, contrary to other ideas of Ukraine, in which you have steppes and and the central Ukraine or forests. But then you have, of course, a very important element, other ethnicities, because if you take Priazovia, there are lots of Greeks there, for example. There were lots of um, the Balkan people, the Serbs and Croats, who were also there. And, of course, initially it was great Kremli land, the Crimean Tatar land, right? So it's very far from this Russian identity. And... When we look at it, we look at the way how Russians forge this artificial identity. For example, take Odessa, a multicultural city, Turkish, Kremli, Bulgar, Ukrainian, Russian, and of course Jewish. And, and then it is during Soviet times, Russian imperial and Soviet times, it was all mixed into this one Russian identity. And I forgot, of course, to mention the European identity, the French, etc. 
let let me talk about the European origins of this region because you talk a lot about this, and of course we know everybody knows that Donetsk was first called Yuzivka because of John Hughes, the Welsh entrepreneur uh, who started the mines. But then there are lots of Belgian entrepreneurs, French entrepreneurs, uh, British entrepreneurs. Can you tell a little bit more about this? Yes, sure. And thank you very much for giving this, of course, multi-ethnic glimpse into various Ukraine's regions, indeed, uh, south and east. And basically, I would like to reiterate this point to our listeners, how much more there is than what the, the Russian pro propaganda wanted us and ma ma many of us to believe. Uh, as for the European settlements, indeed, this is a story which I'm telling in my book. I think it is getting more and more um, known and famous, and I like it very much. I would also definitely recommend the documentary of Kornig Ritsuk, uh, Euro Donbass, uh, who managed to um, not only tell the story of the European settlements and uh, development of the industry in the region, but also capture some of the places which we, mm, I don't think we will find them in the state which, in which they were before the full-scale invasion. So in 2021, he captured this, th th these um uh, places and, and sites of the uh, uh, Western European heritage in Ukraine's East. It's very important. So what the story is about? The story is about, the, the core of it is that the Soviet pride and grandeur of the local heavy industry in Donbass, Donbass is a coal basin and also related to its heavy industry spheres, would not be possible without heavy European investment an intellectual resource. And I think this is, uh, yeah, it tells it all uh, basically about the uh, attribution and, and ownership, uh, both in material and intellectual uh, sense of the word of the Soviets in the region. Basically, indeed, in the uh, second half of the 19th century, uh, the Russian Empire realized the, the, the potential, the industrial potential of the region, but it could not explore it, did not have the resources and the capacity, so the intellectual and engineering capacity. And they invited the investors from Western Europe. You mentioned these countries already. These were uh, Belgium, France, uh, Germany and Britain. And uh, the uh, region was divided into, let's say, zones, uh, economic zones uh, in which uh, the respective the entrepreneurs from the respective countries were responsible for us put it this way where they explored explored the, the, the potential and uh, the um, uh, multiple uh, industries plants and factories uh, appeared uh, where the uh, Western Europeans came so you mentioned already the John Hughes, who indeed uh, started the uh, started mining, uh, was one of the uh, first key settlers to start serious mining in the region. But there was also, for example, a uh, soda, famous soda plant between the, uh, uh, the mutual mutual entre entrepreneurship, mutual enterprise between uh, uh, Belgian and Russian, uh, 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 Belgian and Russian. And well, well, I mean, Russians were the, the also co-owners, but the capital and the, and the uh, manpower and the resources, the key resources came from Belgium and France and, and Germany and Britain. Uh, there was the direct plane, uh, sorry, <laughs> not the plane yet, but there was the direct train between Brussels and Katerinoslav then. Uh, can you imagine? So basically between the, the end of the Donbass region and Brussels, thanks for the European settlements. And the 
absolute, the b- biggest share of the capital in the heavy industry in the region belong to the uh, Western European settlers. They had they brought also their so-called we say that they brought their um, uh, healthcare system, their culture, their schools, their their theaters. Albeit it was rather limited to their own, uh, uh, so their own workers. It was not, uh, let's say, shared with the, with the local workers uh, who were less educated and, and did the the uh, what now call say blue collar job, but basically the basic jobs. Uh, and uh, the share of the capital was so high that um, when the Bolsheviks, they called it nationalized, and in fact they just stole the capital and they just said to the European settlers, well, you're free, it doesn't belong to you anymore. For this reason, Belgium recognized the Soviet Union only in 1935. I think it's a very you know telling fact. Uh, and... Um, and yes, so so basically, what we uh, what we know now is the heavy industry, so steel, um, uh, soda, uh, uh, mining. I've said already uh, various um, fabrics and factories uh, which belong to to the heavy industry in the Donbas uh, was all developed by the Western European capital, and uh, starting from the post Second World War period, the mining specifically was in decline and in demise. So the, the Soviets n- uh, neither were able to uh, maintain its efficiency. So the mines were heavily inefficient in terms of you know so, so resource invested into the uh, the the coal production uh, uh, and in terms of the uh, safety regulations, which were basically absent. So this was super inefficient, and th- th- for this reason also in the uh, period of Ukraine's independence, uh, we inherited the uh, mines which only could survive through dotations from the central budget, which back in the 90s was the story which I think many people outside the region did not realize. Uh, still, however, there was this myth of Donbass feeding Ukraine. In, however, it was all vice versa, as I've just explained. So basically, this grandeur of the uh, heavy industry in the region only pertained to the period where the Western European settlers and investors were physically massively present in the region. Let's talk a little bit about the Ukrainian identity, and you describe it in your book. So we started from the fact that uh, in many ways this Donbass is an artificial uh, construction, but it's artificial also through, uh, through the demographic change, where Lots of people from the whole Soviet Union were just brought into the region to the factories. But at the same time, uh, well, I, I travel a lot uh, uh, in, in this region and I just understand that if you go to villages in Donetsk Oblast and Luhansk Oblast and talk to people, there are many people who speak Ukrainian or the mixture of Ukrainian and Russian, but based upon Ukrainian language. So it's also a myth to say that the Donbass, the so-called Donbass, is Russian-speaking, right? We are ra- rather talking about big cities, big industrial cities. And then the question is, and you describe it, that uh, actually this de-Ukrainization of the East did not stop with the independence. So something happened even in 1991 that actually the number of the Ukrainian schools was was diminishing and this kind of... a post-Soviet, Soviet, post-Soviet, and latently or openly pro-Russian identity was 
cultivated both by the Russians but also by the local oligarchs, local criminals, people like people around Ahmedov, people around Yanukovych and all the rest. Um, is it true? Is it is it is it the way how you describe it in your book? Yes, um, I would uh, underline again when we speak about this division into Russian-speaking and Ukrainian-speaking population of the region, I would have to underline that the population there, as in many other parts of Ukraine, is actually bilingual. So we can speak about uh, the first language of choice, the language which people decide to speak, choose to speak in professional environment or in private life. But in fact, it's not like you know two parallel realities when people do not understand the other language, they usually do. They, to, to, well, their proficiency may differ, but there is this bilingual environment um, and, and bilingual language capacity anyway. Um, it is indeed uh, uh, one of the chapters in, of my book is dedicated to the villages, as I call them, the cradles of the Ukrainian culture, simply because, uh, again, speaking of, 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 the, of the region's in the industrial potential, speak uh, uh, at the end, at the turn of the centuries, between 19th and 20th century, the population uh, of the uh, region was 90%, so overwhelmingly rural, uh, and it also overwhelmingly spoke Ukrainian, uh, up to 70% of the population, according to the Tsarist census, spoke Ukrainian. Uh, then we see the reverse picture, um, actually both in, in language and in uh, distribution between rural and urban areas at the turn of the next century, so between tw 20th century and 21st century. Now we have 90% of the people who live in the cities, only 10% in the villages. And uh, the Ukrainian language, the first language, indeed has, mm, well, I would say, devastatingly low numbers. Indeed, the, if, again, depends on the census or the pollings. We would have slightly different numbers there. Also, people sometimes call, for example, Ukrainian their native language. And at the census of 2001, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 20%. But in the poll of um, 2012, uh, you would have some 10% of people speaking, saying they speak Ukrainian. So indeed, this is a very, very low number. However, if you look at the um, uh, smaller cities that is below uh, 50, a population of 50,000 and villages, you would see there overwhelmingly high numbers for Ukrainian language from 50% up. So 50%, 60, 70, 80 some points. So this, this is how we see how throughout the 20th century, the village preserved the Ukrainian language as its native language. And the important thing which I forgot to say earlier, and you were describing different ethnicities, uh, uh, talking about different periods of, of the region's history beyond 20th and even 19th century, it's also important to underline that the, the region belongs to the I would call it the Cossack part of history, the Cossack, um, um, I don't want to say the, to use the word myth, but the Cossack um, story of the of the region. So uh, the Porizhia, which you mentioned, was also the the, the site where uh, Ukraine's Visko Zaporizhia, that is the uh, uh, Ukraine's Cossack uh, military state, which fought for independence and, and the, the, the Ukraine spirit and Ukraine's identity. Uh, uh, so the, the, the um, settlements of the Cossacks also uh, uh, were uh, situated in the 
uh, uh, on the territory which we now call Donbass, much earlier than the European settlers came there with, 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 with the, uh, their uh, industrial exploration mission. Uh, uh, for example, uh, including uh, the uh, region of Priazovia, including in such uh, settlements as, for example, Isinovato or Dobropilla, and we can hear it from the names of the settlement that these are uh, typical Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian sounding and from, from Ukrainian ear from phonetics can see that it's the Ukrainian settlements dating back to the Cossack times. So there is a lot of history in which we, we can trace also uh, from you know, the inherent Ukrainian, uh, 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 so Ukrainian history and Ukrainian story in this region, much earlier than the Russian and Soviet story began. Um, right, so as for the villages, so basically the villages allow us to trace this heritage, uh, the Ukrainian identity, and of course the region um, suffered uh, both during the Holodomor times um, and during the Great uh, Terror, which also, so Stalin's Great Terror of the 30s, 1930s, uh, which also aimed at uh, uh, destroying um, any potential dissent, including the, the dissent on national ground. And as the, the other point, which I think is also very interesting in terms of how this Ukrainian identity continued to, um, let's say, um, you know, to burn at, I would say, low intensity, low intensity because it was always extinguished, always destroyed by the Soviet power. And here we can talk, of course, about Vasilstus, but also not only about him. Uh, so Olga Onoch, uh, Onoch in her um, latest book, uh, makes a point that the majority, or the, well, so the, big, the big part of Ukrainian dissidents, including those who founded the Ukrainian Helsinki group, uh, actually hail from exactly Donetsk and Lugansk region. So those are uh, Oleg Satychy, uh, Ivan Svetlichny, uh, Vasistus later, and many other names. Mykola Rudenko. Mykola Rudenko, of course, is the head. Uh, so when we look at how they lived and how they indeed dissented and how they uh, were murdered in uh, camps, uh, and in hospitals, for example, as Oleg Satychy, uh, or either where castigated by the <clears throat> by the soviet uh, by the soviet power uh, you would be surprised to find out that they come exactly from ukraine's east uh, so you know i mean after knowing all this after telling all this i, I find it quite self-explanatory to say that this is indeed the ukrainian region of not only let's say peasant culture Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast actually even before 2014 had very high production of agri agriculture and after too, but of course, I mean, the part of the region was occupied by Russia. Uh, uh, but also this intellectual tradition, uh, which went through whole of 20th century, and then I would say was then picked up and continued uh, by uh, such people like Igor Kozlovsky, so late Igor Kozlovsky, like Olena Stashkina, and like many other intellectuals who come from the uh, uh, from, from from the region, from both Luh Donetsk uh, and Luhansk. Uh, Vasily Holobrotko, of course, Ukraine's poet, um, uh, who, yes, I think one of the one of the very important names in Ukrainian literature. But I would also have to stress with the tendency which I see. I mean, if we see this Ukrainian um, Ukrainian uh, actors who promote the Ukrainian idea in its various shapes and forms, then somehow I feel I have to underline that these people come from Donetsk and Lugansk regions because if they, uh, some people may not even ask themselves where they come from. And then this myth about the region being 
you know, permeated by Russian culture and Russian affiliations, just uh, extends itself because sometimes we take the personalities and the historical events taking place in the region uncritically. And at the same time, the, 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 these are the things that are interconnected probably because it is precisely because of this very forceful and violent Russification through industrialization that you have those people who are perceiving themselves as, as fighters for Ukrainian identity, very radical fighters in a good sense of the term that understand that so much, so many things depend on them and uh, they should stand very firm. And I think this is maybe explains why there is a big part of the Ukrainian culture is actually linked to the East. Not not talking on, only about Donetsk and Luhansk region, but talking about Kharkiv, Kharkiv right? Kharkiv, yes. Not not only Kharkiv of today, of Serhii Zhadan and uh, and um, and uh, Hamlets and Kievsky and uh, Literature Museum and uh, all the people around, but also Kharkiv of the. 1920s, of course, but also Kharkiv of the Romantics of the Kharkiv Karazin University and uh, and and people around it in early 19th century. So this is a very important topic of this. Well, there is a banal metaphor that Ukraine is a kind of frontier land, the borderlands. But if you think about what is the borderlands of the borderlands, so the the this essence of the term, you of course are thinking about the East. Let us talk about this dissidence, and particularly you mentioned Stuss. And uh, Stuss is uh, probably, at least, well, one of the best Ukrainian poets in the 20th century, maybe the best for some. A person who was killed, uh, died in the camps, but there are many, many things that indicate that uh, he was killed in the, in the camps in 1985. And... Uh, uh, and uh, the, the the question is that it is already the start of the perestroika, so the, the start of the so-called liberal regime in the Soviet Union. And gradually we discover, I hope uh, Europeans and uh, other people, people from other parts of the world, are discovering Stuss. There is a translation into French by Georges Niva of his poems. Um, but you describe in your uh, book the controversy about giving the name of Stuss to the Donetsk National University. And when I read this again, I remember this controversy. I understand how absurd and hilarious all this discussion uh, was because Stuss was not born in Donbass. He was born in the Vinitsa region, but he studied in, in Donetsk University. And of course, it is natural to give this name to one of the best Poets, and then majority of the people, I think you're talking about 60 out of 62, something like that, majority of these people, uh, it was in, in 2000s, right? In 2000s, voted against it, thinking it was the spirit of Ukrainian banderites and, uh, and nationalists. So we see how this um, Russian identity, artificial again, done, uh, fabricated through demographic changes, through the forced industrialization, through bringing people from all over the Soviet Union, including Russia, through killing the local people, you know, through Holodomor and repressions, actually had echo in early 21st century during the independence, right? How you explain it? Yeah, absolutely. I also have this um, 
the feeling of uh, the history. Yeah, the, the past is not over, it's not even past, right? Um, so there were voices, of course, starting from the omnipresent party of the regions and also the local communists, but also people over, let's say, lower um, mm, lower level of power, like uh, the uh, uh, management or the administration of the uh, one of the uh, one of the local top universities, the National University, who were perpetuating the um, let's put it the way uh, Russian maybe intellectual occupation of the region, uh, which was there much earlier than in 2014. And the battle for Stus, as I call it in, in my book, was the representation of these clashes of identities and of power, of course. So before I get to the battle for, for renaming of Stus, battle not in the military term yet, uh, I, I want to say just a few words about who were the protagonists. And basically, my whole book is about civil society, as I would call it, again, academically. Uh, so about these grassroots movements of various kinds. Uh, and the uh, uh, grassroots movement in the university uh, uh, was uh, the one I write about was called Postov. This uh, Postov is um, the Ukrainian name in English would be a push maybe. Uh, so uh, Postov was a student organization. It comprised uh, students uh, and it operated in the years uh, 2005 to 2008. A little bit 2009 too. Uh, then uh, it was uh, also in action, but outside the walls of the university. However, in 2005, 2006, it started uh, by the initiative of a student, a local student, born and, and raised in Donetsk, uh, Yuri Matuschak. And uh, he was, um, well, basically he cared about who he was and he wanted to uncover uh, the um, Ukraine's uh, national identity, uh, historical memory. Um, this was the process which I would say also involved so un, um, was unleashed not only again in Ukraine's East it was generally on the way starting from the 90s he was one of the protagonists who wanted to bring this culture like for example Christmas carols which were forbidden in the Soviet times he wanted to uh, re-bring them to the region uh, uh, it's important right that we are not talking about importing certain culture but restoring the culture which was there before uh, he wanted of course people to speak Ukrainian but I would like to underline that basically Ukrainian lang the language is not the common denominator for all the movements I write about it is rather about Ukraine as a free sovereign democratic liberal state in the first place and then the people who I write about spoke either Ukrainian or Russian or both um, uh, he uh, uh, held uh, he and his uh, so his followers, his his friends in this um, uh, organization, they made um, uh, street events, for example, to commemorate the victims of Holodomor, Stalin's artificial famine in Ukraine, and many other things. So this were, I would say, quite you know innocent grassroots student organization which pursued its goals. Um, it did not have much opposition until 2008, when this organization uh, started to. Uh, 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 and well, yet another, uh, yet another time, raised the point of renaming the university after Vasistus. Uh, the reasons for this you already explained very well. Plus, in two thousand five, uh, Vasistus was awarded the Hero of Ukraine um, title by the president. So basically, 
from the state point of view, it was rather an uncontroversial figure. It shouldn't have raised that many um, yeah, con controversies in the position, but it did. Uh, it did up to the point that uh, the local administration started its own campaign against renaming, or it also offered some other renaming versions of the Soviet leaders of the time. But basically, one of the points was, and it was, I think, what's rather sly, uh, one of the points was the campaign. Um, it was called Za Nacionalny, so Donetsk, Donetsk National Universitet, Donetsk National University, this was the, the name proper. And they underlined its kind of pan-Ukrainian identity, Nacionalny, rather than attributing the identity to one prominent figure, Vasil Stus. Uh, the, uh, there were signatures collection all over Ukraine, including from diaspora, for renaming. Uh, local, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the Verkhovna Rada uh, members of parliament came to the region as well uh, to, you know, participate and discuss. And this was perceived, and also the Minister of Education, then Minister of Education, raised some statements. And it was perceived by the local university administration as intrusion, intrusion from the center. And what, how this all ended, uh, ah, also an important point that in, during this campaign, the Nationalni, so against renaming the Nationalni, the university administration used the uh, stripes of Ukraine's flag and they distributed them among the students. So basically trying to you know, observe this national identity, which would then exclude people like Stu's, personalities like Stu's. So as I said, this was very slight. It was not some kind of pro-Russian yes, pro campaign. No, it was kind of pro-Ukrainian without Stu's campaign. So um, so it ended with the fact that there was voting of the delegates. So you mentioned 60. Indeed, there were some, some above 62 or something delegates, majorly from the uh, university lecturers of the university staff, but also a couple of delegates from the students. And they overwhelmingly, so uh, I think only two, two people not even voted against, I think they abstained. So there was overwhelming vote against renaming. The whole story, the continuation of the story was also that that Postok was castigated then. So its members, for example, were either punished with low grades uh, during the exams, uh, and then the grades were you know, silently revised because some people could not you know, do away with it with their consciousness, you know, what it's unfair. But the, the thing is, they were uh, they were punished with their grades. Postoch was um, described as the radical organization and the students were explicitly advised against joining it. So this was a persecution of a student organization within the walls of the university. And for this reason, and also for the reason that some of the uh, Postoch key, uh, let's say, leading members graduated, it stopped operating within, as I said, within the walls of the university. So after 2008, 2009, it continued to work as an NGO, an NGO of, of people who were no longer students of the university. And then the university was renamed after Vasistus. Ah, also, also interesting that there was a plate for Vasistus in the university. So, I mean, you would not imagine that this could be such a vociferous campaign, but it was the way it was. And uh, it, the university was only renamed in 2016, so when the university already had to relocate. And I've seen and I've heard from the staff and the graduates actually various reasons for that, why exactly the university was renamed. Um, to me, I mean, better late than ever, of course. But I think that some things are learned at such too high price, right? Uh, so this was the, in 2008, this was a lost battle.
Maybe my last question, uh, what do you think about the Ukrainian identity now in the East? Because obviously the I mean, deoccupation of Luhansk and Donetsk is, uh, is a big goal, but it is far from being very easy. And we don't know whether and when they will be deoccupied. But there, there are other parts of the Ukrainian East, right? There are parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. There are towns like cities like Kramatorsk, like Slovyansk, like Kostantinivka. There was Bakhmut, but it's now destroyed completely by the Russians. There is Kharkiv, there is Zaporizhia. What do you think? What is happening there? I think the process is actually very dynamic and also not uniform in the universe across the, the uh, sites which you mentioned. I often say um, in my interviews and presentations that Donbass is also an inopportune term because we are talking about something that does not exist anymore the way you imagine it, right, from, from this industrial story. I, I mentioned the demise of the mice. I mean, this was the kind of the the, the uh, one of the bits of bits of the story. Now we have, uh, if again, if we talk specifically about uh, Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts, then we have uh, the territory which was occupied starting from 2014 to 2022. So in that long period of occupation, then you have the territory which was occupied since 2022. Then you have the territory destroyed. Then you have uh, free territory, and then you have people displaced. And of course, when we speak about the region, of course it's about people and who lives there and who does not live there, and who dislocated where. Um, so this is such a dynamic and fluid process that I don't know if there is anyone who would be fully capable to you know, re reassess and reappraise the Ukraine identity of the region, because as I said, it's, it's not... It is not limited to the region anymore. And then some people would probably go back home and some would not. Uh, and then some who are not from the region would come. So this is some kind of migration which is hard to foresee right now. I would always abstain from saying... So, I mean, I'm a biased... <laughs> I have a biased interest here. I was deliberately telling this Ukrainian story of the region. Of course, there was a different story too. I mean... Um, we have, of course, collaborators there, starting from 2014. I mean, this is a known fact. But then there were many people who were just Ukrainians, you know, unquestionable Ukrainians. I talked to another Ukrainian uh, activist and, and journalist, Zoya Kazanji, who is from Odessa, and she uh, and she said, well, you know, when you say Ukrainian Odessa, it's kind of exhumeron. I mean, what other Odessa? Of course it's Ukrainian. So uh, this was not unquestionable about Ukraine's East. And I wanted to say, hey, you know, this is not just wishful thinking, this is history and facts. Um, right now, I know many facts and actually collect them of resistance and occupation, starting from 2014. So when I hear something like there is no one waiting for Ukraine there in occupation, I can say it's not true. However, I do not have, and I don't think it would be, you know, legitimate to even try to have the results of any kind of opinion polls in occupation. I mean, this is completely unethical to do. So I want to say, of course, after the occupation, we have a huge task in front of ourselves. The experience of occupation is terrible and there are many questions connected to security, uh, justice, uh, provision of services, of course, um, 
education, culture, and many other factors which Ukraine will have to deal with. And this, my my um, kind of layman views, I'm not a proficient, I'm not an expert here. I think that the the more the territory and the people of occupation, the more challenges there will be. Um, however, I also think that now there is time to rethink our understanding of the identity of the region and maybe rewrite our, well, review our perception of the region with works like mine, but also with many other people who you mentioned and did not mention. Uh, Svetlana Oslavskas, for example, book Severodonetsk, which, which um, uh, is uh, concentrated, is, is focused uh, on only one city uh, in uh, Luhansk uh, Oblast, Severodonetsk. And when I, when I read that book, I had my expectations, but then I said, it's, it's from the same publisher as mine, and I said, but hey, we are telling the same story, <laughs> you know, the story about Ukraine identity and opposition and resistance. So, um, uh, so yes, we have a big goal, a big task in front of us, but we have to know that we have history and people to rely upon. Katarina Zaremba, thank you so much for this conversation. Vladimir, thank you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. My guest was Katarina Zarembo, a Ukrainian scholar and writer of the recent book Schid Ukrainsko Sonsia. Let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.